Welcome to Mastering Data, where we sit down with inspirational leaders in data and IT to hear their interesting career journeys and lessons learned. Each episode is packed with valuable insights and tips for those looking to excel in the world of data. So, whether you're just starting out or a seasoned professional, join us and get ready to take your data skills to the next level. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Data podcast. Today, we welcome Jeremiah Manning, who comes with a diverse career history. So this includes large corporations such as IBM, to consultancies including Altus, Capgemini, and PwC. And today, Jeremiah, or Jez, finds himself working as the Chief Data Officer at United, who are a non-profit organization who work to inspire people and support communities across New South Wales and the Australian Capital Territory. Jez, been a long time coming. Pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks so much for making the time for a chat today. Thanks for having me on. So let's start career history and experience. It's diverse. I mentioned in the intro there, you've got consultancy experience. You've worked for big enterprise corporations such as IBM, and now you find yourself at a nonprofit organization. So can you just talk me through that journey around that? And if it was a planned kind of career path, if you went along your own way, and before you answer, as always, I do my research, Jez, about you. And one thing I found is in 2019, you won a Young ICT Professional of the Year Award. And there's a quote here from you. Oh, you found a quote. No, great. Okay. <laughs> you mentioned as part of winning that award, some of your thought process in terms of how you've approached your career. And the quote was, it's recognition of not needing to follow a linear or traditional career path. And in general, not fitting into a box that is a generic role or matching the stereotypes of what a technology leader looks like. Now, I read that quote, I looked at your career history, and I was like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I see how those two, <laughs> two fit together. So it'd be great just to hear you talk through that journey, kind of how you fell into it, your experience at IBM, and then the consultancy path, and then how you ended up at United today. Well, at the point I made that quote, I think I'd had a few wines. <laughs> um, That's so the best I, I, I barely remember it. Yeah, so I, I think with the career history, you're probably right in saying varied. I think with, with what I did and where that quote came from actually was, you know, early on I started at IBM. And when I started at IBM, I didn't actually even apply to the role that I ended up getting. I applied to engineering. So I studied as an electrical engineer and applied for uh, the IBM electrical engineering internship because they do all of that being a massive company. Then they took my profile and they moved it across to IBM Watson, which was their new and fun thing at the time. And then they told me two days before the interview, I had an interview for IBM Watson, not for electrical engineering. So I had to figure <laughs> out what Watson was in, in a space of a few hours and then got into that. And that was, that was quite interesting because I think I was supposed to be in that for a couple of months, but ended up staying there for 18 months as it started off as like a, a placement and then turned into a, to a job, which was good. So when I came into that, I didn't have any sort of management skills, how to run a project, anything like that. So I had to learn all that very quickly. And I had some some really good managers there that, what's the right word, beat it into me. Um, where, uh, little I, think, things, I think you call it character building. Uh, yeah, and if Jenny ends up listening to this, she'll like this story. But um, where I used to send emails because I was, I was an engineer, right? So we didn't exactly study the English language or how to use it effectively. And I used to send one word emails with like a, please do this. And then sometimes a thanks, maybe. And I really had to learn how to act in a consulting environment and how to act in a technology environment and also how to manage people, stakeholders, all these other things. Because when I came into that team, I was the most junior by quite a large margin. The next person above me was a manager, which at IBM is several grades above where I joined in. So there's this huge gap that I was starting to fill on various engagements. It was a speed run of learning all these skills in order to fill that gap, right? Because we had that work there, but we didn't have people to do it. So part of that was really interesting. So I ended up running a center of excellence for a bit and ended up doing quite interesting 
fantastic projects globally. That role was 85% travel, for example, across APAC. Uh-huh. Okay. So it's quite, yeah, I spent more than 85% mm. of the time traveling. You know, worked in Perth for a bit as FIFO, did all kinds of things yeah. in that role. And that taught me a lot of different elements and what I enjoyed and what I didn't enjoy as well was important. And I think what I, the most part I enjoyed was the consulting element, mm. which is why I chose to move down a consulting track. And for me, it was partially getting the right opportunities at the right time. So if I were to do it again, it would, you would need to find those right things at the right times, right? But coming into consulting, so in Altus, I came in there to help them build their data science capability. So coming off the back of working with Watson on this more advanced technology, helping them come and develop that because they were more of a traditional data warehouse type of, mm-hmm. of consulting firm. From there, I moved into Capgemini. Capgemini was an interesting move because it wasn't wasn't one I expected to make into a larger organization because I, I kind of liked working in, in small teams. But one of the things that I was thinking of is, okay, well, most of my experience, even at IBM being a huge corporation, the Watson team itself was quite small. So it was like 15 people when I was there for the Watson Delivery Hub and it sat separate to the rest of IBM. So we kind of acted like our own little team. And just as I was leaving, it got merged back into the wider Okay. Branch, which is one of the reasons I left. I wasn't wasn't too keen on being part of a yeah. of a eight hundred thousand person branch rather yeah. than the small. So And I guess one of the benefits, Jez, of that initial kind of early experience, it sounded like a great grounding. I mm-hmm. mean, how old were you when you were at IBM roughly? Oh god, okay. The early twenties somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So it was probably a great grounding. And the fact it was a yeah, small team probably first professional role as well. Yeah. Because yeah. I was a I was a tradie before that. Oh, um, okay. So, okay. Yeah, it's really kind of gone yeah. all over the place. But I guess as virtue having such a small team, it allowed you to put your hands onto everything you mentioned. Exactly. Management, yep. you mentioned delivery, you were probably doing an element of consultancy anyway yep. within that role and doing the traveling. So it yep. makes a lot of sense then that you wanted to keep your hands across a number of different things to keep, you know, learning and getting that experience and that exposure. And that was the culture of the team as well. People were more than happy to bring me in, let me shadow them, all those kinds mm-hmm. of things, which was a fantastic way to learn. And it's something that I've taken that experience and try to apply in the teams that I run is how do you give people those those constant stretch opportunities to find out what they actually like working on, particularly people that come in at the graduate level. That's one that yeah, you really have to provide that. It doesn't happen naturally all the time. You have to think about it as a culture, sure. cultural sort of item. Cap Gemini then. So you went in there, was it a, not a similar, smaller team? It was larger, okay. yeah. So that was part of the reason for moving to it. I wanted to experience something at that scale. And for me at the time, I'd kind of gotten a lot of the core data science skills. But when you're working in small organizations, you don't get the opportunity to work at like a platform level, right? You're working at a use case level. You're doing something on your laptop, on a server, but you're still working at the use case level. Capgemini offered the opportunity to move more towards the platform side of the world. And that was what I did there for most of the time. It was it was data science, machine learning platforms, You know, built a machine learning as a service platform, built a document lodgement automation platform for government, did those sorts of projects. And there, you know, going from small use cases of two to three people to running a 25, 30 person team to build a platform over 18 months, right? They're quite, quite different size and shape. And that taught me a lot of things as well around, you know, architecture, had to go through my architecture training, understanding how that works in these environments, had to really figure out how to manage and run teams because it wasn't something I'd done up to that point, really. And that was probably the biggest learning out of it is how to create functional teams at that sort of scale. There was a lot around, you know, being in a, in a large global firm as well. And that kind of gives you a lot of insight and perspective on where Australia sits as a market and what you can use from overseas and bring in and, and you know, all those kinds of things there as well. So that was a fantastic opportunity. And I moved inside of Capgemini as well. I started off in the in the main Capgemini Insights and Data team and I moved to the Invent team, which was more the management consulting arm as well. So I've done a bit of both in okay. that role. And did yeah. you enjoy that? 
diversity and the, and the size of the teams compared to what you'd worked mm. out previously then. Did you favor one over the other? I think the size enables you to do very interesting things. And I think a brand enables you to do very interesting things as well, which is one of the reasons I moved to PwC, right? You know, the sales process at PwC is very different to a sales process at someone like Capgemini because you're on all the panels, you're involved in all of these things, you're a, you know, a household name in most of these organizations. You can start pushing for the very interesting things on the end. Whereas if you're at, you know, other types of consultancies, those things can be hard to find and you have to really create those opportunities, which which we did at Capgemini, but it's a lot harder to do that, mm. right? Whereas you're coming in as somewhere like a big four, you've got a bit more entryway into those conversations. Yeah. So let's just delve into that a little bit more detail, Jez, the, the sales cycle between Capgemini and PwC. What's the difference between that other than the obvious, the brand name, the size and scale of PwC, but do they approach things differently and what does that look like practically on the ground? The sales pitch is different between the organizations. The way you approach it in terms of, and there's a mix at every organization, right? So for example, at Altus, you're primarily relationship sales. You will do tenders, those sorts of things, but primarily your your main things are through relationship and quality work that you've done before, right? Then you go to, to Capgemini, it's a mix of that as well. You've still got relationship sales people. You've got a lot of pre-sales work that goes on in that regard. You've got kind of larger clients that have used you and, and trust you and there's additional work to be done there. And then you're on some panels and some things here and there that you can apply for with tenders. But so, for example, the amount of tenders that I saw come across my desk at Gemini versus PwC, it's probably about one every fortnight at Capgemini, and it's about three a week at PwC, mm. for example. Yeah. So you're just on a lot more panels and you're engaged in a lot more of these things where you're already vetted and you're getting sent that work. So we wouldn't respond to every tender at PwC, whereas we would have a different question at Capgemini because some of that work has to come through tenders and new business and you've got to approach that differently. But I think it's really, it's, it's like any consulting firm, right? You're, you're selling based on the quality of your work and what you've done prior. The other thing to think about is scale. So if you have a larger program of work, you probably will think about the type of organization you're engaging with. If you need right-shore resources, which is you know maybe lower cost resources in different locations, you might look at Capgemini over PwC. PwC, it is a global firm, but it functions regionally. So it has a PwC Australia entity and all these other entities that talk to each other, but are not the same entity at the same time. So PwC is more likely to give you onshore resources for things. Capgemini can give you either or or both. Um, so depending on what kind of flexibility you want, which is actually a really good selling point because you can have all onshore for the build maybe and then offshore for the maintenance. And that is a very cost-effective way of putting a platform together. So it's a really good sell. Um, whereas somewhere like Altus is, is primarily onshore because you're getting maybe a SME to come and do something. And then you look at things like resource augmentation. All the firms will do it, but they'll do it at different levels. So like Capgemini tends to avoid resource augmentation when they can and, and put in larger projects if possible. PwC, they'll do it for subject matter experts and Altus, they'll do it for subject matter experts as well. So it's just very different type, but it, it relies on the same fundamentals of selling and consulting. I sure. Think. Yeah. And, and in your experiences at PwC and the work that you got involved with there then, did that differ greatly from what you were doing at Capgemini? It did. And it was influenced a lot by COVID because there was a lot of COVID-related work. And when you have COVID-related work that's very critical to everything running and the government's credibility and these other things, you use partners that you trust. PwC is one of those partners. Right? I worked on a project that was putting together the numbers for the lower half of Sydney, um, and that was the daily number that went out at 11 a.m. This is the, I got on this about a week and a half after I joined, and my workday then started at about 5.45 because uh, <laughs> I got to get up and do the numbers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then you had to get up, get to do these numbers, get those right, get those out. We're doing those sorts of things as well. That's not an easy project from a 
data or a stakeholder perspective because in the beginning, we didn't actually have data sources for these things, right? So how do you count people in the ICU when the ICU all of a sudden is now twice the size as it used to be and the systems haven't kept up? So we had to come up with a lot of different fixes and measures and all kinds of things we did as part of that. PwC is a partner with you to create an outcome sometimes. So, so companies will engage PwC when they don't necessarily know what they need and they need someone to help them understand that. Whereas with other companies, you can do it more of a, we need this thing, here's the start and the finish, what can you do that for? And PwC will still engage with that work regularly, but there's also that extra on the end. And then I did a bit of strategy work at Capgemini as well, but did probably a little bit more about of that at PwC. So master data management strategies, data strategies, mm-hmm. those sorts of things. Yeah. yeah. But fairly similar in terms of, of the, the health where it was focused. Yeah. yeah. So given all that to date, right, so that brings us up to sort of earlier 2023 this year. Your next move, I wouldn't have been able to predict that, okay, looking at your your career experience so far. Mm. So I'd love to hear about what was the driver and the decision uh, and reason around moving to a nonprofit organization like United. What was the reason going there? Was that something that you were looking for proactively? Or again, was it right time, right place? It was right time, right place to cover that one. But I think upon reflection, I mean, you've got to make up for your sins at some point <laughs> and spending a whole <laughs> career in consulting. If you, I think moving across to a not-for-profit, it was, it's accumulation of skill sets that I've gathered through various roles, right? And there's still a lot of things I'm learning coming in as a CDO that probably wouldn't have even expected to be things that I'd be learning. What which is top three? Uh, probably very much on the operational side. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when you're consulting, you're keeping teams, you're running teams, but not in the same way. It's difficult to explain the nuance, but you don't have similar performance metrics, for example. So consultants are very much like anxious high achievers, right? So you can point them in the right direction, give them an outcome, and they'll figure out how to do it. Whereas when you're in other environments, you need to really understand and be clear about what the goalposts are. So it's working with business stakeholders, it's working with these people to get a very clear understanding of, of where we're doing the work and then going out and doing that work as well and guiding that whole process. It's an interesting challenge and it's, it's quite unique. So that's been quite interesting. I wasn't specifically looking at a non-for-profit and I wasn't specifically looking at a new role, but I just had a couple of conversations with the CIO there and there was a lot of a lot that I wanted to learn from from him and the leadership in the organization. And that was part of the decision. It was it was more on leadership alignment than anything else and what I could learn as part of that. Mm. And the other thing of it as well is, you know, if you look at a consulting career, you kind of don't have many opportunities to jump out and jump back in. So for example, if I was to look at a partnership track in the next couple of years, it's not something you can jump out of a few years in and then come back to your you're committed to that process. And a lot of the partners that I admire in in various consulting firms have some sort of stint with a client. And that gives you these things that I'm learning now. I can understand why, right? You, you get a much deeper appreciation for the pressures that are on these these roles and, and you know how to meet those pressures as well and alleviate that. And that was part of the reason I, I was I was kind of casually half looking mm-hmm. as this came along. Do you think going back into a role in consultancy at some point in the future, having done this role as a CDO, does it give you more appreciation in of the pressures that the client side faces? And would it make you approach that consultancy kind of relationship with the client any differently? I think it would. Yeah, I think it definitely would. You get much more of appreciation for the role that consultants play because it's interesting sitting on the other side of the fence and watching consultants present things in their, their nice little bubble that you've given them to perform in and how sometimes you know they've done really well inside of that, but 
it's the long-lasting impact that'll really get you a relationship out of that, right? And how do you as a, as a consultant figure out where that sits in the business? Because nobody's going to tell you. You have to kind of do that groundwork, right? And it's easy for a consultant to come in and go, hey, we've done this, this strategy or we've done something and it's this is all done, this is what you need. But if there's no realistic ability to to put that strategy in, to follow the steps, to do all those sorts of things. Yeah, it just gives you more insight into how that execution works, I think. Because oftentimes, like I've been guilty of that in the past as well, you put a strategy together, you think about execution, but you don't necessarily have the understanding of these roles to figure out what the blockers for that execution would be. You know, realistic timelines as well. I think that was another one that, that's been quite interesting. And that gives you just yeah an appreciation for how these things are used and the artifacts you generate and the systems you generate, how they will actually proliferate through the organization. And you mentioned part of the reason that influenced you going to Uniting was the, the CIO there. You had a number of conversations you mentioned with them. Do you see that as a kind of mentor, a mentorship? Have you had mm. mentors in the past? And, and oh, yeah. yep. could you just talk me through kind of what you've learned through that engagement? Has it been informal? Has it been formal? And just generally the value it's had and the impact on your kind of career personally? So I don't think I've ever had a formal mentor, but I've had plenty of informal mentors. And I think that has had a huge impact on my career. And, you know, these are people that I'll talk to about opportunities that come up and get their opinion on it and all that kind of thing. And it, it gives you a lot of perspective and it helps you understand your own blind spots, I think is the best part about about mentoring. I mean, I've had Ever since I started at IBM, I, I was assigned to someone very early on who was an engineer at the time, and he's now in consulting as a director. But I still catch up with him regularly for his his viewpoint on, yeah. on everything. So there's a lot of those kind of long-running relationships that they have all the context about you. That's a good thing about a mentor. Got all the context about you. You never have to explain yourself. It's always just, hey, I'm dealing with this thing. What do you think? And that goes a long way, I think, when you've got that. That goes kind of sounding boards. Sometimes sometimes it's just a bit of a rant on a problem that you've got <laughs> um, and they offer some useful perspective and you feel better about it and you go back and you're able to solve the problem, right? Yeah. I think mentors are extremely important in the data world as well because there are so many pathways you can take and it's increasingly an even more flexible career. You see people going, you know, kind of out of data tangentially into to business-facing roles and then back in and all kinds of different things. There's a lot of different permutations of the career now and understand you know how that relates to your overall goal and where you want to go that's exactly what a mentor is for really yeah. um, so i definitely suggest it for anyone that's anyone that's going through it yeah and, yeah. and anyone that's listening maybe is at the outset of their career or you know maybe in the consultancy world want to get into industry like you have as well have your mentorship opportunities came up because it's been more organic so you're kind of working with somebody and that's developed into a more of a sanding board or have you proactively sought out those mentors you purposely in different positions you worked in? A bit of both. What I found, I'm not sure if this is great advice, but it works for me. As well as as good as any. So when you're more junior, if, if there are you know senior people that you may have worked with a little bit on, on a project or whatever else, and they leave the organization, they're a perfect target for a mentorship conversation. So you go, you know, a couple, couple months after they've left, you go, hey, have you got, you want to have lunch? catch up, have that, because then you get their perspective on how the organization functions, how to be successful within the organization. And then they'll give you some pretty honest feedback about what they observed about you. And sometimes, you know, I've done that with people that may have only observed me for a handful of hours on, and you get some really interesting things that you wouldn't have thought about because your context is very different Mm -hmm. from their context and how they're approaching the conversation. So that's a really good way of getting, of getting good conversations. And the one thing I would say though, is if you do have those conversations, have 
specific questions that relate to the area that person is is in, right? If they're in sales, ask sales questions, those sorts of things, because that's what they more than happy to talk about. Most people are more than happy to catch up and talk about these things, right? People's time isn't necessarily exclusive, and I'm the same, right? People message me semi-regularly to catch up and have coffee, more than happy to do it. Um, those sorts of things are how, you know, as a leader, you discover talent within the, the market that you could potentially use later on. And for them, they understand you get a bit of mentoring out of it, right? So it works for everybody in those conversations. Be a little bit brazen with people that you reach out to because it's worthwhile. Going back to United and then just digging into a bit more detail, when you got into there, what was your remit? Because it's on kind of a journey. So can we just talk about when you walked in there, what was the environment like? What was your remit and the goals that you had to achieve? And what does that journey kind of look like at the moment? So it's been an interesting journey so far. But when I joined in, so Uniting's got a very, very well-built internal data environment, which I'd heard a little bit about on the way in, but coming in and having a look at, it's all thumbs up, which is okay, great. So they've got a really well-functioning Snowflake instance. They've got ADF on top. We use Power BI for the majority of our reporting. We've got almost a thousand reports on on Power BI. So it's being used quite extensively, which is good. And that's just the ones we support. So there's a bunch of other yeah, things as well. Sure yeah. More. Um, double. So, so yeah, they've, they've been through. So the prior CDO has done a fantastic job of, of really building it up to where it is now. And it's it's for me, the remit is, okay, how do we get to the next step, right? What does the next step look like? Um, and that's an interesting conversation because it's, it's multifaceted and it's not technology driven, right? It's very much literacy, maturity, those sorts of things that become the questions. We have all this great reporting that's built and it works really, really well. How do we get people to use it? How do we get people to engage with it more, to move off older systems to, you know, it's using technology to enable people-based outcomes, right? And that's the kind of step that I'm working through at the moment. So what I'm doing is is um, a refresh of the data strategy in particular to hit those targets. And Uniting has a 10-year strategy that is its overall target for where it wants to be in 10 years. And it's aligning what we're doing from data perspective to that as well. Um, and that's quite hard, 10 years in terms yeah. of horizon in the data space. Yeah, usually you throw them out in six months. So <laughs> yeah, and I think that's why um, I'm taking more of a, a people and people outcomes focus because those things have a lot more longevity than technology. and we have some great partnerships with technology vendors that will always keep us in touch with the latest technology. But as long as we've got something to guide what we engage with and where we spend the money, that's the important thing, I think. And that's why we're, we're taking more of a people-focused approach to it. Because we have a lot of people, right? And a lot of people doing a lot of different things with you know, an organization like Uniting. You've got frontline staff, you've got nurses, you've got carers, you've got all kinds of different things, as well as corporate staff and finance controllers and all this kind of other things. So as an internal service, we're seeding a lot of masters, right, to do a lot of different things. And how do we do that in an efficient way that actually enables the outcomes of those people's jobs? That's what we need to get to. And I guess, I mean, culturally, changing the culture of an organization takes time and uh, a considerable amount of effort. But when you've got a, such a diverse group of data consumers or personas that you just mentioned there, what approaches are you taking to to kind of drive that cultural change and get people to kind of you know, treat data as asset, use it more effectively, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it starts at the top with these sorts of things. So uh, the board's got a fantastic focus on, you know, they know that this is a strategic component. We are still working through where that fits and how that becomes a strategic component, but the, the ambition is there, right? And I think with that, that's where you, you have to start. And then it's really a, a change management education process. And we have a really good internal change management division as well that does a lot of work in that space. And it helps us because, you know, we're, we're data professionals, right? So we kind of understand change management at an overall theoretical level, but we don't understand it as a uh, on the ground with the people level, right? So it's using it's using other parts of the organization to facilitate data from creating these outcomes. So 
it's not just us running trainings. It's also change management people catching up regularly with end users, making sure they understand it, making sure their feedback's heard and actioned, those sorts of things as well. If something's, if you're getting inputs that something's too difficult, okay, well, let's work on a, an actual outcome to do it. And I think for us, it's about being flexible with, with technology and, and, you know, UI standards and those sorts of things that sometimes, you know, a standard is all well and good. But if the people at the end aren't going to use it because of something you've set in your standard, then it's probably not functional, right? So how do we set functional standards for these things that people can engage with? In this industry as well, there's a lot of bespoke tooling to do specific parts of things. Like when you're talking about looking after, you know, looking after someone in an aged care facility, there's specific things you need to interact with as part of that. And those UIs probably, you know, designed 25 years ago. So some of them are a little bit, a little bit clunky and heavy and it's, it's selling the value of what we're doing to move away from those things. But once you've been using that for 15 years, if you look at a shiny Power BI report, sometimes that's very, very a difficult transition, right? Because you've basically got muscle memory on how to use this old 25-year-old form, whereas this thing's all new and you need to go and find the things that you need. So there's a lot you need to do to, to migrate that. And it's about time, it's about effort, it's about open communication, transparency with where things sit. And we've got a long way to go on that journey. So we are still beginning and, and working through that, but it's organizational support at a top level and then change management throughout the whole uh, underneath. One observation I've got from what you've mentioned around Uniting is that you're not the first generation CDO to come in, right? Correct, yep. And being a first generation CDO comes with its own challenges, but often there's a lot of quick wins to be had at the same time. I think one of your challenges is coming in as a second or certainly not the first CDO anyway, where you've mentioned that the technology benchmark is pretty good. It's a good benchmark to start with. Where do you find those quick wins then? Because the cultural stuff certainly is not a quick win. Where do you take it then? It's, a, it's quite a different set of challenges coming in subsequent to somebody else that's done a decent job in terms of steering the ship to, to the points at today. Where do you see your kind of next sort of six, 12 months, that short-term piece that you can actually move the needle further? I think it's it's business use and adoption of what we've built. So we've built a lot of good things and there's a lot of technology that sits behind it, but there is the, the use of that. You know, when it becomes ingrained as a standard process and Amongst most business units, then you've got a lot of success, and that's not a quick win. That's a you know twelve month kind of win. But for me, I'm less focused on your one to three to six month wins, and more on how do we create a longer term change. The other thing to think about too is there's there's still technology improvements we need to make, but they matter to me more than they matter to most people. Is what I would say. So, for example, understanding our lineage of data through our source systems is something that I care about because I can monitor quality outcomes mm -hmm. and I can make sure that when I put a report in front of somebody that I'm 100 percent certain of the quality of it. Whereas we don't necessarily have that technology today, so we can't do that sort of work. But that that's not a quick win for a business consumer because they're assuming as soon as the report's in front of you, it's 100% accurate anyway, which is fair to say. Um, so there's a lot of back and forth between um, having a win that's a technology-facing win and a business-facing win. With the business, we already have quite substantial backlogs and, and programs of work with everybody. Um, so there are wins that we get through that as well. One other thing that happened in May 2023 is that when you left PwC, not only did you join United, but you also started up a company on your own called Future Grip. I'd love to hear more about that, what it does, how that interacts or not with the day job and how you kind of fit that in as well. Yeah, it's not allowed to interact with the day job, obviously. <laughs> um, so yeah, that would be called a conflict of interest. Yeah, so it's basically we do data and AI consulting on the side. So a couple of key offerings is your sort of, you know, AI ML solutions. So building various use cases, you know, we're not not large, obviously, so we're not going to go build your whole platform. But I have a pool of contractors that I've worked with 
extensively in the past and, you know, people I trust to do this type of work. So it's uh, assembling the right people for the right uh, use case. And there's also, you know, ML ops that we do a bit of as well and data strategy work is the main thing. The other thing that started to, to get a bit of traction as well is sort of CDO advisory. I think that's actually been quite interesting because having had more experience as a CDO and a senior leader within data and consulting, you get a unique perspective on how these things kind of land from both sides of the fence. Yeah. Um, so that's another element of it as well. So the model at the moment is just me. It's not like a huge thing or anything. It's just helping people out to move towards those goals. And one of the other key things is value articulation. So on the advisory side, how do you actually articulate the value and the justification for some of the work that you want to do? So for example, generative AI, a lot of the value justification I've seen is we want to use generative AI. And that sentence in and of itself does not actually provide your organization any value. It's a technology thing, right? So how do you change that conversation? How do you actually make sure that if you want to put this new technology, you want to do this new thing, you've got some sort of outcome you can track and you can measure and you can see your return, right? So having those sorts of conversations as well. Have you seen anybody practically leveraging generative? of AI to produce business outcomes, yeah? Uh, yeah, I've done it. I did, I did a use case of PwC, which is quite interesting. So for a large client, they were doing a culture review. So a review of... Um you know, all the culture throughout their organization, they're, they're a global organization. So they had multiple languages and all kinds of things. Their feedback was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of lines of free text feedback. And it was like four different languages, I think. So uh, we did a project where we effectively went through, took all of this feedback, so four or 500,000 lines of feedback and put this into a system to understand, okay, what are the commonalities amongst this? So thematic analysis is pretty straightforward. And then once you've got the commonalities, can we generate a summary of those? So using some of the underpinnings of LLMs like transformers and that sort of stuff to build a summary of these, these clusters. So for example, I'm proud of the organization. You could build a summary of that as, you know, probably... 60,000 uh, verbatims inside of that. And you're building a summary that represents a good portion of the population and also across language as well, which was interesting. So instead of just doing this for English, you're doing it across all different languages and different languages express these things differently. So it offers some really interesting perspectives on, you know, when you've got a, you know, we love the organization, what percentage of globally, where does your population sit in that? Or what are the differences in different countries? And all of this analysis then went into a cultural review around how do we improve the culture in this organization in the next five years. And it was a really interesting insight. Some of those sentences that were generated on the things became some of the main headline quotes on what we do well and what we need to do better. There's things like that where that's a bit more bespoke and once off, but there are use cases for this that, that pop up. And I think we didn't focus on that on using generative AI, we can, what's the problem? What tools can we use to do that? And that was one of those things that contributed. And that's when you get a lot of success with this sort of tooling. And before we we kind of wrap things up, you know, you've done big enterprises, got a startup, you've worked in consultancy, you've worked in industry. What's next for Jeremiah Mannins going forwards? Do you know what kind of things would you like to achieve from a career perspective going forward? Because you've done a lot of things in a lot of different capacities, both large and small. So I'm intrigued to know kind of where your head's at and what you're thinking longer term for you or what the next kind of move might be. Great question. One I've asked myself <laughs> You don't know, do you? <laughs> I don't know. No. Uh, yeah. In full transparency, no, I don't know. I think, you know, with, with where I'm at at the moment, this role is something I'm very interested in and getting success out of this role. And I think it's a bit around assessing my own skill set and where I, what I'm good at will then dictate what the next move is. So what I don't think I'm good at would be other C-level roles, having observed other C-level leadership. So for example, a CIO role, I have to balance my ability to perform with what I'm interested in. And that's probably something that could be a personality flaw, but you know, I've got to deal with it either way. 
working on things I'm interested in, I'm going to be a lot more successful. So I love working on, on data and, and these sorts of things as well. So that keeps me really interested day to day on putting this together. So if I was to branch out into, and like I've done uh, my training for boards, so I've got the GICD certificate and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's something that I'm interested in as well, is how can data start to influence leadership and mm-hmm. boards and all of this kind of thing. Much needed. Yeah. I don't necessarily want to be on a board doing governance, right? I want to be on a board thinking about how to use data towards the future. So it's very specific opportunities for that. Yeah, and so I don't know what that means really. Is this is this summation? <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, you go with the flow, I think, is what yeah, it means. Like you happy have where to... I am, but yeah, just looking at what suits my personality. Because the other thing too is as you start to move up, the opportunities are less and less flexible, right? And there's more that comes with a move and an opportunity. So you have to be more you have to understand it in a lot more detail. And if if you like for when I joined Uniting, I spent quite a long time meeting people, understanding the drivers, like it wasn't a two interview and get hired. It was more like six or seven and then sit in a room with a few people and discuss as well. And I think as you as you start to get more senior career, that's more and more worthwhile to make sure that you actually can create change in the organization you're joining and that it's a fit, right? It's got to be a fit for your ambition as well as, as the organizations. I think that's a great point because it needs to work both ways, mm-hmm. right? You know, they need to see how you're going to operate and work and you need to have some kind of you know, remit to be able to to influence change and make change and a yeah, positive course. impact. Which leads me to my final question. And so not every CDO comes from a technical background. A lot of CDOs that I've worked with in the past have came from a business background, right? And, and they're kind of picking up what they need to from a technical perspective. And there's pros and cons to ev- every every kind of facet in terms of that. But for yourself, coming from a technical background into a CDO, if other people are in technical roles today, whether that be heads of data or heads of uh, you know architecture, what advice would you give to those people potentially listening today that wanted to get into a CDO role to, to find out what it's all about? So to give you an example, when I first started, I was very much like lock them in a room with a laptop, turn the lights off, come back in eight hours type of guy where I just, you know, as I mentioned, I couldn't, couldn't write emails, couldn't do anything. I had to really understand how people perceived me in those situations. And sometimes people can get perceived as technical rightly or wrongly, and it changes the way people interpret your communications. So if you're a head of, for example, I would say a head of is, is more of a business facing role than anything else, right? What you are there to do is to make the business successful. And you do that via employing technology. So if you can think about your role in a different way and think about what the drivers are, then you can have more productive conversations and you start to change the way people perceive what you're doing. If you're a head of, I mean, realistically, you have to have business facing skills to go into a CDO role. If you're technical only, it, it won't be a successful role because most of the role is, is negotiations and understanding what business needs and how to fill those needs. And then at the end of the day, you also get to think about technology and how you improve your own platforms. That's the little fun bit on the end. So you need to kind of have that appreciation for how that works. And I think it can be difficult if you've been in, let's say you've been head of data role for a few years in one organization and you're viewed as quite technical. It can be difficult to change that perception. But I think it's about having open and honest conversations. Go, look, my ambition is to to move into some a role like this. These are the things that I'm working on. You know, I know that I'm perceived as technical within this organization. What I'm trying to do is get exposure and experience to things outside of my remit to understand how that I can influence them, right? And people are pretty receptive to that most of the time, particularly your own leadership. They'll go, okay, well, maybe sit in on this conversation with the COO and see how they drive this problem, right? COO is very focused on operations, but they have to have a business conversation 95% of the day. So maybe observe how 
they uh, change the way they introduce a technical concept? Do they even introduce a technical concept or do they focus on the use case, right? There's a lot of different nuances on how you approach that language. And once you learn that and you start to use that, the perception of what you're doing will change and your perception of yourself will change as well. The best way that I thought about it as I was kind of learning these skills is thinking of myself as a translator. Technical inputs one side, business outputs the other side, and I'm the translator in the middle, right? It's a very simple kind of mental diagram, but it helps you kind of analyze every bit of information that you're given and go, okay, well, why does business care about this? Why do the techies care about this? And how do I get something in the middle, right? And that kind of conversation with yourself helps guide the way you communicate and it makes a big difference, I think. Love it. I think that's great advice. We're up against time now, um, Jez. I just want to thank you for your time, giving up your valuable time to come in and share some of the insights. I certainly find it valuable. I'm sure the listeners will as well. So thanks so much, Jez, for coming in. I wish you all the very best in the future. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Mastering Data. Hit follow to get future episodes packed with valuable insights and tips for those looking to excel in the world of data. And if you enjoyed this episode, leave a review to help others find the podcast. 